garbage. It's a global problem, but some communities in the Philippines are overwhelmed by it. Waste, much of it plastic, clogs waterways and endangers people's health. This year, at World Vision Canada's Social Innovation Challenge, five teams of Canadian entrepreneurs will present solutions to this problem in the form of sustainable businesses. The winners will receive $25,000 to make their solution a reality. Want to watch teams compete and talk social finance and impact investing? Join us on June 19th in Toronto. More information is available in the show notes. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. And on today's episode, we have Trish Nixon joining us from CoPower. Trish is managing director and head of capital there. And CoPower is an online platform for Canadians to make investments uh, that can help support the transition to a low carbon economy and environment. So Trish, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Do I, did I do a decent job of describing CoPower? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, that's uh, really what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, empower Canadians and investors of all kind to invest in and profit from uh, the transition to our low carbon future. So nailed it. And happy to obviously get a little bit deeper into what that means in practice. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about just with, give us the 10,000 foot view of CoPower, what it means for people who are thinking about impact investing and how you sort of help enable that. Sure, absolutely. So maybe I'll start a little bit with, you know, why CoPower came to be to begin with. Sure, um, yeah. And, you know, my business partners were uh, working in uh, clean tech venture capital when they had the idea to start CoPower because they were noticing that a lot of money was going into new clean technology as it absolutely needs to continue to do. But there were gaps in financing for deploying already proven technology. So something we call project finance. To take a simple example, solar panel company will develop a technology that harvests energy from the sun, and there'll be R&D and capital that goes into building that technology. And as we know, the, you know, the technology associated with solar, the prices come down exponentially. And then that technology needs to be deployed and put into use. You know, in order to do that, there's a myriad of things that need to happen. There needs to be someone willing to buy the power. There needs to be someone there to develop the project. So kind of boots on the ground, putting the panels up on a roof or building a farm. And then there needs to be financing to make that all happen. Clean technology or renewable power, you know, generally speaking, has some high upfront costs to build the project. And then fuel is cheaper free. So, you know, over time, there's a lot of revenue and money that can be generated from that power. But what we were seeing was a lack of financing to build those projects, particularly when it comes to smaller, what we call distributed clean energy projects. So these are things like, you know, again, solar on rooftops or small solar farms, uh, energy efficiency, retrofits in buildings, geo exchange, heating and cooling projects that lower the amount of energy used to heat or cool your home. Um, A lot of these smaller projects don't have access to mainstream finance. So big infrastructure investors, you know, are financing oil sands or, you know, utility scale, hundreds of millions of dollars solar or wind projects, but they're not financing the smaller distributed clean energy systems and innovations that use proven technology that can really make a huge impact on how we move to the low carbon transition. You know, we sometimes talk about energy moving from big and dirty to smaller, cleaner, and much more distributed. So that was really the problem that CoPower is set up to solve, is how can new financial solutions help deploy clean energy faster? And, you know, at the same time, and my background in impact investing, there's been, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, more and more as we go on in time, but a surge of interest and appetite from all different types of investors 
to invest in sustainable infrastructure, to invest in clean technology, but also just more generally to invest with their values, to invest in socially responsible investments, uh, investments that have positive social environmental impact. And so that's sort of where CoPower came together to connect the supply and demand, knowing there's you know, millions of Canadians across the country that would love to be investing their money in something they can feel good about. And knowing that there's gaps in project finance, which is also a pretty safe type of finance, which makes it an area to invest in that could be helped deploying more clean technology. And so we sit in the middle as an asset manager and financial intermediary. We lend to clean energy projects. We pool those loans into financial products, so green bonds and funds. And then we make them available to different types of investors. And so the kind of third piece that makes CoPower unique is that using the trend toward online investing, you know, we decided to build our own online investment platform, become registered with the Securities Commissions as an exempt market dealer, so that we could distribute our impact investment products directly to Canadians. So, you know, somebody sitting in Calgary at their kitchen table can go online to copower.me and, you know, learn about and understand our products and actually go through a full investment process, you know, right there from their kitchen table and start impact investing. It's awesome. Thanks for that. I, we're going to unpack some of that in some more detail. I'm, I'm curious on some of the details of, of all that. That's a really great example. And I think the last point you mentioned is a pretty distinguishing feature. I don't know that it's, you're the only one to do that, but, and I could be wrong about that, but it's not all that common that you actually own your sort of distribution and set up an online platform to be able to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it was a great opportunity to do that. It's an exciting company because there is that, you know, financial technology angle. But also the reason we did that is because there is so much white space still in impact investing. It's really hard for investors to find and access impact investment products. You know, many impact investment products are private placements, which means it's harder to get on the shelves of investment brokerages, harder to be sold where investors already are. As we grow, we're starting to be more accessible through those channels as well. From a mission perspective, as well as from where we saw gaps and opportunities perspective, we wanted to make our investment products accessible to average Canadians. And to do that, we can't be going out and having coffee, you know, the way that often private equity type funds are raised, you know, we can't be going out and having coffee or doing, you know, long pitches in person to thousands of Canadians in a cost effective way. And so like in many disruptive industries, there's an opportunity for technology to actually make that process much more efficient, much more scalable, and much cheaper. So that was sort of the impetus behind saying, well, let's use technology to make our products very accessible. I'm going to stop and unpack that a little bit. I think people will find it interesting. So you mentioned sort of being on the shelves of brokerages. And you know, in practical terms, I think for people outside of the industry who may not understand what that means is that in order to allow Canadians to buy or sell investments, you have to be a securities dealer. And there's different classes of licensing that you can pursue when you go to you know, your RBC or your TD. They are a securities dealer. They own that. Then there are independents who don't sell any products, but are dealers themselves. And that would be you know, your Manulife Securities or your Investment Planning Council, or there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of them, Richardson, uh, GMP. And then they, though, however, you know, have to allow products right onto their platforms. And so the banks tend to be a lot more selective about what they allow. It tends mm-hmm. to be primarily through the bank channels, um, their own proprietary product and or just those few organizations they have a strong relationship with. Um, if you go to the independents, they have a much wider list. It's a big wide list of publicly traded securities. Yeah. Uh, and it's a much smaller list of private securities that they allow onto the platform. And what I found particularly interesting is that in this environment, the regulatory environment is changing and there's questions around how much fiduciary responsibilities the dealers have in doing due diligence on the investment they allow onto their platforms. And so in the past, I think it was a, the notion that the financial advisor who ends up dealing with the client is responsible for ensuring that, you know, there might be a crappy product on the platform, but the advisors are the one responsible for like, hey, I did my due diligence. It's a quality product and it's right for this client. And I think there's increasing questions now about whether the dealers themselves actually have to assure that there's some basic due diligence. And when you get to this bigger list of private securities that are potentially available to them, it's freezing them up a little bit and they need to have a, quite a bit of impetus to put one on their platform. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. Banks, for example, like 
Well, I mean, there's a couple of issues and you hit on, you hit on a couple of them. One is, you know, these brokerages and, you know, whether bank owned or independent, typically they're focused on public markets. And one reason for that is scale. You know, they can very easily buy more on an ongoing basis of the same products and put, if they have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management, billions of dollars of assets under management from, you know, many clients, they can put all their clients in similar things or, you know, not have to have a whole bunch of different bespoke products on their shelves. So, I mean, I think that's one of the issues. And then, yeah, to your point, the other is just the due diligence process. And I think oftentimes people are, you know, averse to doing something new. And because private investment products, you know, they're structured a little bit differently. Um, There's a different level of, uh, there's less regulatory oversight. Sometimes, for an example, our green bonds aren't rated. So they can't just go say, oh, Moody's gave this uh, an investment grade rating. So therefore, that's all the due diligence I need to do. It's just a little bit more challenging. And so yeah, there does need to be that impetus. What's really interesting is that we are starting to get a lot of questions from investment advisors and, you know, have some conversations with some of these brokerages about putting co-powered green bonds on their shelf. And the reason for that is because we've built our brand and our own distribution platform and we do our own marketing, clients are asking for it. Clients are saying, hey, why can't you invest in you know, a green bond for me? Why can't I do impact investments with you, my advisor? And so we actually recently got approved on the Aviso platform, which is sort of the product shelf for most of the credit unions. I think maybe all of the credit unions even across Canada, which is neat because credit unions tend to be, you know, and credit union customers tend to be pretty mission driven. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're working through that process right now with Vancity Sustainable Wealth Management so that their advisors can, can purchase green bonds for clients. So definitely starting to make headway, but there needs to be that client demand and certainly encourage everyone listening. If you do have an investment advisor, ask your advisor about your sustainable investment op- options, impact investment options, because seeing that client demand is what's going to create the change and, you know, create the impetus to make these types of products more accessible. Yeah. And that's sort of the catch 22, right? Is that most Canadians buy investments through their financial advisor and it's not even close, the disparity. And most Canadians don't know a whole lot. And most Canadians, I don't think most Canadians are not still not thinking about impact investing. And so how do you get that message out? And are we just in our own echo chambers talking to each other? There's another interesting piece here when it comes to accessibility. It's not just impact investments that are inaccessible to most Canadians. It's really all private alternative investments. Super wealthy, high net worth individuals, family offices, other larger investors get options to a plethora of investment opportunities, really interesting investment opportunities that most Canadians don't. So private equity, venture capital, private real estate, even things like hedge funds. And some of these investment vehicles are really great for diversifying your portfolio, um, for managing your exposure to public equities where there can be a lot of volatility or for getting, you know, with the example of a private debt or a a private credit product for being able to invest in fixed income that's going to give you, you know, a decent yield compared to, you know, what you're getting in the public fixed income markets right now. And so even just from a financial perspective, and again, it's challenging for the reasons we've chatted about before, but the concept of kind of democratizing alternative investing generally is a really interesting and important one. And I know that a lot of co-power investors, most of our investors are certainly very environmentally conscious and uh, you know attracted to the impact, but a lot of them are also investing because they're saying, well, where else can I get 5% on a bond? And you know, I like the fact that this is uncorrelated to what's happening in the public markets. And just to make sure I say this, one of the things to be aware of when it comes to investing in a private placement like ours is there is a lack of liquidity. So there's no secondary market. If you buy a co-powered green bond, you can't sell it. You're invested for four years or six years. But that also means the price doesn't change. So you know you're getting 5% for six years. And a lot of investors, most, you know, would probably not be responsible to put all your money into products like that. In fact, we wouldn't allow it because you're going to want some liquidity. But a lot of investors are pretty happy having 10, 20% of their portfolio locked in because that's more about their savings anyway. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to say on this. I mean, one is just to tease out the private investment issue is really does come down to as simple as, because I imagine people listening going, well, this seems like a no brainer. It's unfair that Canadians don't have access to that. And I think there's like the spirit of it makes sense, right? Like if there's less disclosure, you're less certain about what you're getting. And those investors who are the least 
you know, sort of in theory, those investors who know are less knowledgeable investments should be protected. Absolutely. Yeah. The, you know, the, re- yeah, the regulators are there to, to protect and the regulators actually did like the reason that we're able to sell our green bonds is because in 2016, I believe, uh, which was right before we launched our first green bond, you know, new regulations were harmonized across Canada called the offering memorandum exemptions. They came into effect at the same time as the crowdfunding exemptions yeah. that actually allow non-accredited and accredited being basically an ultra high net worth individual, non-accredited investors to purchase securities that are issued under the offering memorandum exemption. So that means that we registered with the securities commissions. We have to just um, make our offering memorandum available and file it. There's some regulatory oversight, but not as much as there is for, you know, IROC dealers that are distributing public market securities. And so you're absolutely right. You know, the spirit is around protection. And there are now ways to still make some of these products available. And so, again, then the next hurdle comes back to distribution. And, you know, again, why we created our own distribution channel, because we can just, it's just was simpler to let Canadians who want to buy it directly. Yeah, yeah. You you forego the gatekeepers and go direct. Exactly. Um, I mean, there was going to be a but with my sort of defense of the regulatory spirit, which is the the but is, is they take some very crude shortcuts to try to do those things. So for instance, the credit and investor rule is a really crude cut at like who is sophisticated and who isn't. And it's usually some sort of income or ask how much money you have. And we all know that there's maybe some correlation, but it's real loose between the amount of money you have and the financial knowledge, investment knowledge you have. Absolutely. So the spirit of it is good. I think in practice, it often doesn't work particularly well. And it does end up casting this uh, pall upon private investments that, oh, that's scary and dangerous. And on the private side, just like on the public side, I would argue probably just as much disparity in the quality of the investments. Totally. Understand the product, understand the manager, do your due diligence the same way you or a trusted advisor, um, you know, should be in any public markets investment. Yeah. So I wanted to run something past you, and I don't want to stay on this too, too long, this topic, sure. but on the issue of distribution, we I was on a panel discussion of the social finance forum this year, and it was, I think, the last, <laughs> last presentation of the last day. But we were sort of talking about this idea of how do we get impact investments more spread across the country and greater um, penetration with Canadians. And so there's this sort of, you could address it at the sort of like, hey, how do we kind of democratize access to it? But I think you still have the problem of awareness. And so even if you can make it easy for people, which you're doing, and I think that's wonderful. I actually, I will come back to this after. I think you guys are doing a, a really great job of a like marketing, creating awareness. You're doing the entire industry a favor by the amount you're doing it. I see the ads pop up a lot in Facebook and on, and I really do. I genuinely, and I think you're doing a good job of communicating. Well, we have an excellent director of growth. So yeah. uh, our, our, our marketing team is, uh, is really strong. <laughs> that's Greg, right? Yeah, that's Greg. Yeah, yeah. Greg's amazing. Yeah, Greg. yeah I, I like Greg a lot. Uh, so kudos on, the, on that. But you know that it's hard going, right? You know better than anybody, like how tough that is. You just put a lot of time, energy and money. Like you're putting money and time and energy. It's going to benefit the entire industry. There's, there's which, we, which, is, which is only a plus. You know, I think this industry yeah. is very collaborative because it's it is, not really yeah. about, it's about growing the pie, not, you know. We're all trying to do something positive, right? Exactly. But, uh, and yeah, and, and we're, we're about raising more awareness and making more capital available versus competing over what capital is sort of already focused in this space. Right. Yeah. And even if we don't share the same cause, very few of us, like when if you care about the environment, don't care about you know, other social goods or, you know, whatever the case. Um, I mean, climate change is pretty important for social issues as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, yeah. no, absolutely. working on a social cause, yeah. you're probably not like, oh, I don't care. That's not a good thing to pursue. You're like, oh, yeah, if we can help you with air too, great. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the thoughts that I'd had, I, yeah, I don't, this is one of those things that I don't know how likely it is to ever happen in practice, but if it could, boy, I think it could move the needle is, is this idea of like, if the government would give any sort of tax incentives, create a tax credit system or tax incentives for making impact investments. Um, what's interesting about that is not just that it creates demand from Canadians, which I think it would, at least sparks their interest. Oh, I heard that you know, the media picks up on that stuff. Canadians are interested to know when they can save on taxes. The media picks it up. And then I think you open the floodgates for clients, ask their advisors. And now it becomes like a for a financial advisor, and that's where the bottleneck is, 
they have to really have enough clients asking about it to start to pay attention because they don't know what impact investing is. They don't know what the options are. Mm-hmm. It's not available on their platforms. And if nobody's asking about it, they're not going out of their way to figure it out, yeah. not on mass. And so if it becomes a, like, if there's a tax savings availability to making an impact investment, all of a sudden it becomes a tax planning issue. And now it's actually like, well, you have a fiduciary duty to understand what that tax benefit is. Because if you don't know anything about it and you're not taking advantage of it for your client, then I think you actually would could potentially face legal liability as, a, as an advisor. Um, yeah, and so that could, like open the floodgates from a, a demand perspective far beyond just like the fact that there's some tax savings. It's like mm-hmm. just, it could give that momentum. I think the challenge is like what government is, you know, I don't know when and where they'd want to do that. And we, and I think we'd have to learn the lessons from things like labor sponsored venture funds, which were a miserable you know, failure. And so, you know, I wonder whether you'd ever yeah, have to I think that. it's, it's hard. Like, I, I mean, conceptually, I love it. Um, it's hard to figure out where the best kind of government intervention and incentives are. Is it for the investor? Is it in the underlying industries? And, you know, ideally it's, you know, I think government has a very powerful role to play if played smartly in, you know, accelerating, obviously, the deployment of low carbon infrastructure, but, you know, growing impact investing um, more generally, you know, across all sorts of different social areas, there obviously becomes challenges of what qualifies, you know, how do we determine which investment opportunities qualify for what incentives. But I don't think any of those are insurmountable issues. There just needs to be real political will. And um, yeah, it's a question we get all the time, though. Oh, do you get incentives or do, are there tax incentives for investing? Because people just sort of think, well, there should be. Yeah, it's a good thing. I get, I get a tax rebate for donating to a charity. And now this is different. You're investing in a for-profit investment opportunity that's going to give you a financial return. But you're choosing to put your money here and it's good for Canada. And people often assume, you know, when I talk about what I do, that there should be kind of tax incentives associated with it. And Certainly, I'm not against that concept by any means. I think it would be very powerful in all of the ways that you described. And there's actually two different issues. I think you were alluding to that. There's the issue of like you can incentivize at what level. And so is it, is it the projects or the investments themselves or the investor? So for instance, like instead of, okay, you know, or in addition to, we're going to create tax incentives for clean energy projects mm-hmm. to make them more you know, profitable or viable. The other is like, hey, if you make qualified impact investments, there's tax credits at the investor level, like similar to like the RSP, like the government consistently incentivizes Canadians to do the things that are positive. For Canadians, yeah. <laughs> for, for Canadians. And so helping, you know, giving them an incentive to direct investments to positive investments. You know, it would be amazing if, it, if to have it at the investor level for a couple of reasons, certainly the awareness reasons that you described, but also, you know, I think when we talk about impact investing, there's lots of different times, types of impact investing. Some are, you know, intentionally below market returns, whereas some are market returns, market beating returns. Having tax incentives, you know, for co-power, for example, we consider our green bonds, you know, market or, you know, strong financial returns that we're offering to our investors. We can do that because we're solving problems in underserved markets and, you know, uh, can generate strong returns. However, if there were tax incentives so that we could give investors effectively a 5% annual return, but really only be paying a 4%, we could fund so many more projects because, you know, we are our threshold for the economics of the project or our ability to bring financing that's a a better solution would become that much stronger. So, you know, I do think that uh, you know, when we talk about gaps, it's, you know, it's awareness, it's the advisor level, et cetera. It's also what products are available and how much of those products are available and cheaper capital, which, you know, I don't believe that the investor should have to, you know, sacrifice returns, but, you know, if tax incentives could mean that they don't have to, but cheaper capital for impact initiatives and projects could be available, we could have so many more products. We could do so much more investing. So I do think it's something that uh, I don't know if it'll ever be on the radar or something that uh, it's considered at the federal level, but it could certainly be very interesting. Yeah. And last thing I'll say on this, because it's really relevant to the subject of the podcast is I use impact investing in sort of the broadest sense or just sort of the colloquial term for, you know, broadly speaking, there's a, a lot of interesting areas within social finance, but it wasn't as exciting to call the podcast, the social finance podcast. Um, the other possibility is that I, I wonder whether you've ever had any conversations at any level of government along this, but like the idea of blended finance where, 
you, potentially the government comes along and instead of incentivizing or paying tax credits or things like that, it's just providing a guarantee, a backstop for like, hey, these co-power bonds now pay 5% interest. And by the way, they're guaranteed by the Canadian government. Like, Yeah, I wow. mean, something like that or the underlying loans, you know, if we could yeah. have, when you talk about blended finance, say, great, government has a, wants to deploy more, let's pick one sector, yeah. energy efficiency across buildings across Canada. Yeah they could partner with groups like ours, partner with private capital providers to backstop loans, guarantee loans, or, you know, be kind of first in capital or help us aggregate an initial portfolio. There's so many different points along the spectrum that they could intervene and play a role and just help a lot more get done. So we've had some of those conversations with different levels of government and different parts of government. And I think generally there's interest and excitement, but there's not necessarily a specific I don't know. I mean, they're working on these things, um, yeah. but it's hard to, a government can be pretty open. So there's certainly a lot of really smart, um, interesting people working on some of these concepts, but it's challenging and it takes time to deploy. So we'll see where yeah. things end up. Cool. We can move on from this topic. Um, I'd be real curious. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this space and your background? It's, yeah. I like hearing people's stories. Absolutely. Okay. So if I kind of go back to, um, all the way back to childhood. <laughs> so I grew up in a family where my dad was an investment banker. My sister went into banking. My brother went into banking. You uh, studied so international sort of, relations, didn't you end up? Yeah. And I studied international <laughs> relations. So sort of a right, still your punchline. <laughs> yeah. I was a good middle child who had alternate views of the world and how I should be living in it. So, you know, I was always very fascinated by, you know, the structures that, led to inequality at a global and local level and you know sorry i'm just imagining right now the conversations around your dinner table growing up anyway. oh. <laughs> we okay. had some good table conversations for <laughs> sure <laughs> lots of interesting debates and conversations so i became quite fascinated with kind of how capitalism became the predominant kind of global structure that led to the systems and the world basically that we have today. And anyway, so yeah, as you said, I went and studied international relations, which for me was, you know, really interesting to look at a global level and, and look at systems and structures and sort of understand kind of geopolitical concepts and again, what our world looks like today. And then coming out of that, I sort of, I guess I was a little bit disenchanted. You know, originally I think I wanted to work for the UN or a global NGO and I sort of became disenchanted with that path, you know, I'd always volunteered a lot. And so considered going down to chari- uh, working in the charitable sector and just sort of struggled to figure out what the right fit was in terms of how I wanted to really dedicate my career. And so while I was figuring this out kind of post-university, my first year post-university, I worked on the Vancouver Olympics. So that was a super fun uh, <laughs> kind of a gap year, did some traveling. But yeah, but after that, I came across this concept of, of social finance and uh, through actually learned about the Acumen Fund and um, read Jacqueline Novogratz's book and talked to some friends who had understood this space and was kind of like, wow, this combines all of the things that I love and I'm really excited about. Social change, systems change. I guess having grown up in a very finance household, there was maybe an interest to kind of lean into that a little bit but for the purposes that I was excited about. So I actually was working at, uh, uh, working at Reuters as a journalist at that time. Um, did that for a little under a year and then left to go work at the Mars Center for Impact Investing. So the Center for Impact Investing was just launching. I kind of found out about it online as I was Googling and managed to go and secure a, a fellowship there right when the center was launching. So joined a really great team trying to build, basically build a team of capacity builders. Our mission was basically to accelerate impact investing in Canada um, and had some great opportunities to work with investors there. Um, uh, starting out in kind of research and communications and then doing some advisory work with different foundations and other investors. Worked a little bit on some new products. And then I started working and, and started an accelerator program and working with social purpose companies and launched a, a small impact venture fund uh, as well there. So kind of got to play in a lot of different spaces, surrounded by a lot of smart people at Mars and, you know, in clean tech and health and this nebulous impact investing world uh, and, and learn a lot. and. And it was while I was at Mars, actually, I was leading um, venture services for the SBX at the time and met the two men behind CoPower. Uh, so David Berliner and Raphael Buscula, who were sort of in the very early days of 
conceptualizing and launching CoPower. Um, and I thought, what a great opportunity to go and build a impact investment company. You know, I, again, move from capacity building to building was really attractive to me. Focus in on, you know, one issue that was really important to me, which is climate change and, uh, and the low carbon transition and build products that made sense. When I was at Mars, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges, I actually wrote a report on mission investing for foundations. And the biggest challenge that came out in terms of more getting more investors in this space was a lack of product that met their needs. And so I, what I loved about CoPower was that it was focused on investing in real assets. So kind of, and we started at the lower risk end of the spectrum, you know, with what is now our green bond product, but doing senior secured loans to operating clean energy projects that had long-term contracts and revenues. You know, and again, starting in that, that real asset space, very different risk profile to venture capital, for example, where a lot of impact investment dollars were going, just seemed like such a more accessible entry point for lots of different investors. So that was really exciting to me, you know, build good impact investment products, build a good impact investment company. And then the third piece was I loved the fact that they had the vision to make their products accessible to retail investors. Because when I was at Mars... You know, I remember opening and, you know, doing all of this work in the space. I couldn't invest in anything. Like I couldn't actually practice what I preach. I remember opening um, my RSP account uh, at RBC at when I started my job at Mars. And, uh, you know, I asked if I could, what sustainable investing options they had. And they had one, which was the GNC uh, sustainable investment portfolio, which is, you know, a public SRI portfolio. But I was just starting my RSP and I didn't have $15,000 or whatever the minimum I needed to invest in that. So I literally had zero options and it was just so frustrating. So the concept of, uh, again, you know, the thing that motivated me most was the products that we were developing, which I thought were really good products. But really then just the opportunity to say, yeah, let's use technology. Let's build a super cool company so that people like me can actually invest in these types of uh, products. So anyway, I jumped ship and, uh, and joined CoPower and uh, coming up on four years in May now. So the rest is history. It's been a pretty wild ride, huh? Four years? Yeah, it has been. It's, there's never a dull moment when you're building a startup company. Lots of up and downs. People always ask me if I love my job and I'm like, I love my job, but it is a roller coaster. Mm. It's... Uh, <laughs> Depends on the day, but no, but fundamentally I do. I really love it. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Great learning experience. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about that journey from, you know, when you started, like where was CoPower at when you joined? How big was it? What stage were you guys at? And then what happened? Over yeah. So when I started talking to David and Raph about joining, it was the two of them plus a part-time consultant who is acting as the chief investment officer. So a woman named Catherine Ole, who has years and years of experience in project finance and really has developed our investment criteria on all of our loans. Uh, she's still with us on a part-time basis. So it was them. And uh, they were in the process of closing their first sort of MVP, uh, minimum viable product, which was a, like a very small $500,000 fund to invest in a couple of clean energy projects. And they were working on raising an initial round of financing at the corporate level. So because CoPower, I guess, had to and wanted to build out, you know, not just launch a fund, but build out our tech platform and, you know, do all of those compliance and regulatory pieces, et cetera. We actually raised venture capital into the talk co, into the company. Um, to be able to do that. So I started talking to them, I guess, you know, about joining in, you know, maybe December of 2014 and, uh, and officially joined uh, just as they closed their, the seed round in, uh, in May, 2015. Nice. Um, yeah. So tiny team. I was the first, they were both based out of Montreal. I was the Toronto office. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of hit the ground running. And, you know, over the last four years, we've built up to 15 people. Uh, in Toronto and Montreal. I've got some uh, friends here in my office now. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Very cool. So you've gone from basically you know, a few people, a handful of people to 15 in total. Uh, how many funds have you raised? Dollars or products? <laughs> products. Well, both. 
So we started out with, again, that kind of small starter fund. And then when I joined, we raised a $4 million private debt fund from accredited investors. And then we went and launched, again, right when the regulatory changes came out, uh, we launched our kind of first iteration of our tech platform and our retail product. So we actually took that first small little fund and we issued bonds out of it, which then repaid the initial investors who then all of them, I think, invested, all of them invested in our next fund. So there was kind of a mini securitization uh, event and flipping event, uh, which let, which allowed us to go and say, great, here, the projects are already here. If you're investing in the green bonds, you know, you're investing in these projects, you're getting a 5% return for this period. That was our first green bond. So learning from that experience, we decided to put together a, what we call a warehouse credit facility. So we went and raised $4.2 million in loans from a few mission-aligned investors, the Ivy Foundation, the McConnell Foundation. Actually, I worked very closely with the McConnell Foundation to set this up. And then the Hamilton Foundation, Van City Credit Union, and the B-Light Foundation all provided loans to this vehicle that acted like a credit facility. So they gave us a loan with two terms. We pay them X percent when we've invested their money in clean energy projects, and then we pay a standby fee when capital is not invested. Oh, wow. What that allowed us to do was go and invest in loans and build an initial $4.2 million portfolio, which then when we issued what is now our official version, our kind of scalable version of the co-power green bonds, we could raise money from retail investors over time, buy out those loans over time, and then do it all over again. So well, the first million and a half we raised the first month of our, our green bonds um, was went to pay back, went to buy out the loans in the credit facility. That allowed us to go and invest in the next loan. So now we have this kind of cyclical thing happening where we can manage the variability between raising money from investors on a monthly basis and then investing in loans that could be you know anywhere from a million to twelve million dollars on an ongoing basis. So you kind of need that. Uh, the way that we've structured our product, you need both. So anyway, long-winded answer, but yeah, credit facility. And then we launched our official green bond, um, which is the bond that's available today, which is about 25 million um, under management. And then we actually are in the process of launching and we'll, we'll be publicly announcing it soon, but of, uh, of launching a equity fund. So that invests equity in clean energy projects in similar markets. So stay tuned for that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm very interested to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a date for the announcement or not yet? Targeting April. We're actually working with another firm to do a joint venture uh, fund. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be really exciting. Um, So targeting April, but uh, fingers crossed. (laughs) This is all fascinating. Um, The credit facility, I mean, that's like a veritable who's who of impact investors, especially, you know, whatever this was, was this four years ago or? Yeah. And so you needed to do that because you just can't find the type of financing you needed for this type of endeavor from traditional. Yeah. And remember, we were a new company, so it's pretty hard to get a credit facility from a bank when you only have a year track record, right? right? And because it's project finance. So the lenders, like those foundations and and VinCity, they're secured by the underlying loans, but we're managing the kind of portfolio. So it is sort of a unique structure. Um, You know, I think that kind of we're coming up on probably a point in time where we could do a slightly different but similar type of, of, of model with, um, you know, a more mainstream lender. Uh, but yeah, definitely those investors. And again, you know, I worked very closely with McConnell on setting it up to make sure that it, you know, they, they had their view, uh, the McConnell Foundation's view, or at least the, their social finance team was, this is, they were looking at it as a program related investment, which means it directly aligned to the programmatic goals, the charitable goals of the foundation. They loved the fact that we were making impact investments available to more Canadians, the democratization aspect, the clean energy obviously is, you know, right in their wheelhouse. And so they were keen to structure an innovative, you know, financing solution to help us do that. And so they looked at, okay, you know, CoPower needs to pay us for this service, but what do they need to pay us so that, you know, it's not impeding their business and so that they're giving us the capital so that they have the capital needed to do this and uh, so that it's an appropriate risk return, but, you know, they weren't trying to get rich off of it. So, and they were really interested in what are the impact outcomes, you know, and I guess the, the others 
you know, followed suit. And, you know, once it was structured, it was easier to say yes to. And they kind of looked at it and said, oh, this makes sense from a risk return perspective. You know, you're paying us 5% when the money's invested in a project, when there's a little bit of risk there. And we're paying a small standby fee, approximately 1% uh, when it's not invested because it's sitting in money markets and there's not really any risk there. So instead of looking at, you know, oh, we want to make 7%, they said, well, what's what's an appropriate risk return profile that gets us the impact that we're looking for? So really great to have those partners on board and uh, yeah, really crucial to making our product work and to the, you know, 700 investors who are now invested in green bonds. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I had uh, Stephen Hutter on, it'll be one of the next episodes we release. They're just doing amazing work and they sounds like it just comes down to right foundations are willing to be more creative because they want to make a positive impact. And this is one of the ways in which they can do that. And so they're willing yeah, to Yeah, and all of these ones, and often foundations can play a really interesting role by being catalytic as well. And I think that was what, you know, these groups also really liked was, okay, they weren't just investing in a product they felt good about, they were actually catalyzing a product that could bring in, you know, a, a whole bunch more capital. Our, our pitch to them was basically, well, let's raise a $4 million warehouse line, credit facility, and we'll deploy $20 million in clean energy loans over the next two years or whatever it was, next year or two years. And that was really attractive to say, oh, great, you know, I can buy back my impact here. Yeah, I, it's, to me, it's another is like a really great example of how when you start to an experience that I went through that I think a lot of people, especially if you because my background is in finance and investments in particular, and it's sort of traditional free market. You know, I a lot of probably what your family uh, was was uh, disciplined in, and, uh, and there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen, and you you feel like you sort of after you sort of kind of come to some of these revelations and you kind of expand your mind a little bit, I feel like I was sort of viewing the world very narrowly. And once that sort of those blinders are taken off, it's like, Oh, wow. Right. Like where was it ever written that it only has to be this way or that these are the the boundaries of what's possible or acceptable. And it really does feel like if we're more creative and stop being so mentally lazy and taking these shortcuts, that these are the boundaries you've got this whole world of opportunity. And that's a really great example of how our bank would just say, well, that's not feasible. Yeah. And, and that may include, by the way, not quantifying your return only in financial terms. But um, not even necessarily. Sometimes it's just the right. structure. Sometimes it is pure finance. You know, I've, right? said, I've said before that I think the fact that I don't have a pure finance background in that's some right. ways has served me well in my role at CoPower in terms of looking at a problem and problem solving rather than saying, this is the way things are done. And, you know, choosing a path or being constrained by that in the early days of CoPower, it's when we were structuring our bond product, it was, well, what are we trying to achieve? What are kind of the inputs? What are we looking for? How do we solve for X? And that was part of that was creating the warehouse. Now, I will also say that having a very strong pure finance background, and certainly we have a lot of people uh, on our team and, you know, advisors in the early days, et cetera, who have that. You know, I, w- I wouldn't have wanted to start CoPower or do our products kind of on my own without all, you, you need all, you need the right mix of expertise around the table, but having, but I think it's a great example of how having just diversity of thought is so important to developing innovative solutions. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I've had to, people have listened to this podcast regularly will maybe be tired of hearing about it, but I've had to unlearn a lot of things and that does take time and effort and energy and it does blind me to certain possibilities that somebody from your perspective, you wouldn't have the same blinders on. So mm-hmm. I, I think you're exactly right that it, there's a benefit to having multiple, you know, diversity of views at the table. That's true of anything, but yeah, a good absolutely. example of that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the green bonds then. Finance different types of clean energy projects. Broadly speaking, I'm aware of kind of three broad categories and you correct me if there's others or so kind of solar voltaic, solar panels, um, mm-hmm. geothermal projects and LED lighting retrofits. Am I missing any? And can you give a breakdown of what those are? So those are the three types of projects that are in our current green bond portfolio. We've, right. in, out of our first fund, we also financed um, a deeper energy retrofit. So, you know, not just LED lights, but, you know, a whole bunch of interventions in uh, actually in the Harborfront Center uh, in oh, Toronto. Okay. One of our smallest loans, because it was just a one building, but a deep retrofit. And then... Um, in our future pipeline of opportunities, we've done a lot of work thinking about and understanding and, you know, are, are kind of close to investing in a couple of other areas 
including energy storage, including renewable natural gas and other types of energy efficiency sort of retrofits. But the ones you spoke about too, about, yes, there are, there are kind of our bread and butter. That's what we've done the most of and we'll continue probably doing the most of. I want you to walk through maybe an example of each of those to really mm-hmm. make it re- re- come home for, for people. What that is, how is it possible you're generating a return by paying for you know, solar panels or geothermal? So the REAM bonds, there's different terms and different rates that you pay yeah. for those different, for people locking up their money for a certain period of time. Yes, we have a four-year 4% bond and a six-year 5% bond, and both are available in, so we have different series and investors can choose whether they want simple interest, which means they're being paid, I'll use the 6% bond or the six-year bond as an example. So if you choose the six-year 5% bond, you can earn 5% annually paid quarterly and just get those quarterly distributions in your bank account, or you can choose to compound your interest. So that means that over the six-year period, your quarterly interest payments are being reinvested, and then you get your interest accrues and you're paid your principal and interest at maturity. So if you choose the compounding bond, your bond, your annual return is actually about 5.6%. What percentage of people choose one versus the other? I'm curious. So I don't have the exact numbers in my head right now, but most choose our Series E, which is five, which is six-year, 5% compounding. Oh, yeah. um, uh, I would say probably about 40% are there. Probably about 20 to 25% do uh, six-year simple interest. And then we have, uh, I don't know where I'm at now in terms of the percentages, but you know, 30-ish, 35% um, are choosing one or the other in the four-year bond because they have a shorter time horizon. I'm really curious. Like, I can't imagine you have too many like seniors who are depending on the income from these bonds to pay their living expenses. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm wondering why anybody would choose to take the interest. You know, we do actually have a lot of seniors investors. um, But but you're right that most and part of investing in a private product and any investment is that, you know, you don't want to be purely dependent on the income from that investment because of whatever risks. But some investors, I think there's two things. I think some investors just like to see those payments in there, especially when they're doing something new and different. They like to see those payments coming through on a quarterly basis, you know, which I totally understand. It feels... The, the like, moment they get their first check from you, it's like, oh, this is a legitimate operation. I can see that the investment's performing because yeah. I have cash in my bank account. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then the second thing is, you know, a lot of people do want income from their investments. And the fact, like, a, when you look at a lot of fixed income investments right now that are you know, generating steady payments, they're pretty low. And so, you know, if this is going to be a slice of my portfolio, like I might want to, in my public equities portfolio, I might have a long-term time horizon and I might want to be, you know, reinvesting all of my dividends. And so, you know, I'd actually rather get a little bit of income from the slice of my portfolio that's invested in co-power bonds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Um, it also goes when you don't invest through a registered account. So if people invest through registered accounts, they're normally doing compounding. But if you invest directly, then the distributions are right back into your bank account. So if you actually want a bit more income in your bank account and you'd rather, you know, in your investment account over here, you'd rather have, um, uh, you know, everything just continue to be invest- investing, but you like seeing every quarter, you like seeing, you know, $500 come into your bank account. I can understand that. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, that makes sense. I guess maybe let's get back to then the types of projects you're financing. So when I sort of describe co-power to people, I talk about the LED retrofits. I think it's like a really tangible one. Everybody knows what LED lights are, that they're more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really easy way to... But anyway, I'll, I'm going to let you sort of give maybe a tangible example of those different things. And how is it possible you can make that an investment out of that? Totally. And the LED lighting one, maybe I'll start there because it is super simple, the technology piece, but our financing structure is a little bit innovative. Okay. Um, Tell me if I'm, if I'm kind of getting too, too in the weeds. So yeah, so everyone knows what an LED light is. It's way more efficient than a traditional light bulb. And therefore by having LED lights, your electricity goes down a lot, your electricity bill. So the way that we finance projects is we partner with the clean energy developers or the engineering firm. So in this case, you know, the LED lighting firm, and they're actually the ones that are going, um, you know, to all the condo corporations in Toronto or Calgary and saying, hey, let us swap out the light bulbs in all of your common spaces because the costs to the the condo association are going to come down a lot. And so some condos are just going to say, yeah, great. We have a budget to do that. We're just going to do it one and done easy. But more often than not, you know, the upfront, say it costs 
$100,000 to do that in a condo building. Well, the condo corporation or the condo association might not view that as a top priority. They might not want to have to do an additional draw from all of their tenants to make it happen. So if the LED firm can come with a financing solution and say, hey, let us swap out your light bulbs, you don't have to pay anything up front or what you have to pay up front is very minimal. You can sign a contract with us for energy efficiency services or for the lighting services so that you're going to pay us X dollars a month over the next, in some cases, it's two and a half years. The payback's really fast. And we can very accurately project your energy savings. So we can tell you with 99% confidence that your monthly bill is never going to be higher than the savings that you've made on your electricity bill, meaning you're never out of pocket. Um, and then Copower is sitting there on the back end with, uh, you know, partnering and setting up this structure with the LED firm where we've said, great, let's make this look like project finance so that we can provide, you know, really secure financing to this. So they set up a, a corporation that owns all of those contracts that collects all of those receivables from now it's something like 900 condos and other buildings across the country. And all of those revenues go to pay back the loan that Copower has made. And, you know, sitting as co-power, now we have security over that entity that owns all of those receivables and contracts, et cetera. So we've just created a way to very safely finance lots of small projects across the country, help the developer win more business, help more uh, uh, lights be, LED lighting be deployed, and help condo corporations get to, to, to retrofit their buildings without really having to pay anything and just benefiting from all the savings down the line. So... That's sort of a detailed, uh, detailed description of how it works, but you know, it, is, it really is um, such a win-win-win and so a, a neat solution there and one that we want to do lots more of. Let me just pause there for a second. So just because it, it's a real tangible one that I think people can get their heads around easy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we talk about the risks of something like that, it seems to me there's a few that pop up, not that it's necessarily risky, but any investment, there's always yeah, a, totally. a trade-off. So it would be things like, you know, the risk that the condo doesn't, isn't able to continue paying you, but they're never out of pocket. So that's going to mitigate it that way. They're not having to come up with the money. Yeah, the risk, and they're contractually obligated to pay. The, one of the reasons we like financing condos too is that they also, condo law means that they have to have a certain amount of capital and reserve. reserve yeah. So the risk is, the risk is does the condo go bankrupt, but bankrupt, but condos have very, very, very sure. low bankruptcy rates. Yeah. And we look at things like the, you know, where they are and the occupation rate and that kind of thing when we're assessing that. But yeah, or that the condo just decides they're not going to pay. Um, of course, then there's, there's contractual obligations Legal, and there's yeah. recourse. So the risk there is pretty low, but things can happen. Absolutely. Right. And then I guess, depending on what happens for the price for electricity, with that, that's a risk in some regard. I don't know how stable that is. In the way that we've structured them, typically, um, the condos actually bearing that risk because their payments are fixed and the loan payments, you know, that CoPower has are, are fixed. So okay. if the price of electricity went down drastically, then, you know, I talked about that, that the feature that, you know, we're, we're pretty certain that you'll never pay more than your electricity bill. I mean, that could that change. Could they, could have, they could have a, a lighting payment that exceeds the savings on their bill. Um, and that's a risk that, you know, again, most condos are willing to take on given the payments are spread out over a long period of time. So, and what other sources of meaningful risk? I don't want the whole litany of every possible. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> in that example, um, you know, I think that the, the, yeah, we've eliminated performance risk from CoPower because the contracts are there and, okay. and the loan payments are fixed. No you currency know, exchange? We're doing all Canada. You know, currency risk is, a, is an important one. We'd, we'd, uh, we do actually want to start moving into the U.S. and we need to, to make sure we have the structures to hedge currency risk because that's what's prevented us from investing in the U.S. so far. But not yeah, I mean, on the LED condos, then again, so we always look very closely at counterparty risk. So, I mean, upfront, it's like, what's the structure? And I kind of talked through how we structured that in a, in a safe way by having a special purpose corporation that owns all the contracts and co-power having security and that kind of thing. Counterparty risk is the other thing we look at. So who's the end payer? In this case, the condo corporation. There's some commercial buildings in there too. So, um, you know, that might, that might on a standalone be a little bit riskier than lending to a condo. However... Because there's 800 plus projects now in the portfolio, there's such strong diversification 
and we've got a buffer in terms of like, you know, our loan to value ratio. So we'll only lend up to a maximum of 80% of the total value of the receivables coming in, meaning if 20% of the condos defaulted, there'd still be enough capital to pay us back. Obviously, then the LED firm wouldn't be making money, which is not a situation we ever want. um, But there are some buffers in there. Uh, but yeah, the risks that we really look at are, are, you know, the project, the performance, the technology, you know, with things like solar, there's more risk around, you know, how sunny is it throughout the year, or making sure that there's the, the panels are maintained properly so that the output, you know, there might be a fixed price for power, but, you know, how much power is going to be sold is one thing that we look at very closely in the kind of financial model to make sure there's enough revenue there to, to service the loan payments. So yeah, so project structure, technology, counterparty who's the end payer. Um, and uh, those, are the, those are the main ones that we look at. And then with everything, you know, with project finance lending, it's, well, how can we mitigate and solve for this risk? But we have generally, you know, we've maintained a risk, a view of risk that's kind of low to moderate. There are a lot of areas of the kind of low carbon economy, distributed clean energy of economy that we'd like to start investing in where we haven't quite got the right figured out the right risk profile yet um, in more kind of emerging markets. Um, and so that would be some things like net metered solar. So if, uh, if someone, if a corporation or if a commercial building is going to put solar on their roof and use that solar, how do we make sure that they're still going to be there in, you know, 15 years if the loan extends out that far? Or, um, you know, if there's not a fixed price for power, how do we get around some of that merchant risk? So there's lots of areas where we, we can't invest right now because it doesn't meet our, our risk profile. But anyway, those are those are generally some of the considerations. That's really great. Um, and then just last on risk, um, and I'm being mindful of, of time here. I don't want to keep your whole day. Um, in the worst case scenario, I, I always like to go through the examples of, of worst case scenario and make sure that mm. when people kind of go into investments, it's with full, you know, eyes wide, yeah. wide open. Um, worst case scenario, the, there's some cataclysmic uh, event that creates, you know, where you're now, you know, shy on, on you know, short on the principal. Mm-hmm. The investors, like, is they don't have a claim on assets, do they in the... So investors okay. are, so not directly, but in practice... You'd want to make them whole. You've got a yeah, strong. So they, so they have. So they have. So the bonds are issued by Copower Financing. Um, Copower Financing is a special purpose corporation that does two things: it issues bonds and it invests in loans to clean energy projects. Copower Inc. So the company that I work for is the manager of that entity. So if for some reason Copower Financing didn't have uh, the revenues or you know wasn't able to pay back principal at maturity um, because it's fixed obligations you know, it would be in default. So bondholders are, the bonds are unsecured because they're not directly secured to the underlying loans, but bondholders are the only lenders to Copower Financing, which means they they do have a right to all of the assets that Copower Finance Inc. owns and everything Copower Finance Inc. owns is secured to loans to clean energy projects. So it's indirect um, and a little bit, you know, a little bit more complicated, but um, you know, the, 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 the simple and, and kind of straightforward answer is if that happened and there's, it could happen, um, you know, it could be in a situation, there could be a situation where, you know, a bond comes due and, you know, it's not a situation we anticipate. It's not uh, anything we would ever want to happen, but for some reason there was a problem with one of the projects and principal wasn't available at the time. The likely scenario is that you're getting paid back over a little bit of a longer time period versus not getting paid back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's really that's it's interesting, right? That makes yeah. that but we'll really try and avoid that at all possible yeah. costs. Yeah, like I mean reputationally you're gonna want to try to make people whole, you're not gonna wanna create these environments. So like you're gonna get creative about how are we making sure we're getting these payments on time. So yeah. I think with impact invest it's funny, we talk about it a lot with impact investments and impact investing fund managers, the bar is just higher. You mm-hmm. can't get it wrong because you know, we can't A, I think the motivations are different. You know, we're Probably Cobar is a for-profit company, but you know our, our primary motivator isn't profit. You know, I think it's just it's so important to make sure that from a kind of fiduciary perspective and in terms of you know we want investors to be first-time impact investors with Copower and have a great experience, so they go and invest in other impact investment products, and that just really means we can't get it wrong. So we have to be really careful with how we manage investors' money and you know the the kind of risk profile that that we look at and you know 
I would just, I'll just throw in the disclaimer right now. If you are thinking about investing in Copower Green Bonds, make sure you read the offering memorandum, which, you know, outlines all of the risks. And like any investment, there certainly are risks. Uh, but yeah, as, as the manager, we just, uh, yeah, I think the, I think the bar is really high. We've just got to execute. Yeah. I think that's right. Also, because like, it'd be a black eye for the entire impact investment community. Exactly. So like, we're all like, hey, nobody screw this up. Like, this is what I've dedicated my life to. Yeah. Cannot be that guy. <laughs> I wanted to just save the last maybe a few minutes for, you know, I'm not a, like scientist. So I'm, I'm highly supportive of the transition to the low carbon. I want to do what I can. I am often left with the question. I'm the type of person who says like, I want to find those wins where I get the most leverage on my impact. And so what's the best way that I can impact the environment? Is that, you know, eating less meat? Is it driving less frequently? Is it recycling? And I'm going to try to do as many of those things as I can, but really you're going to focus on those big, big wins. And you guys put it in an interesting paper talking about that. Can you talk about about that? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Um, super interesting question. So we there was an article a couple summers ago that came out it was a big global publication, but I'm, my mind's blanking on where exactly it came from. But it talked about that. What can people do or what's the biggest individual impact on or what creates the most kind of carbon footprint for any person and how can you change your behavior? Um, and it got a lot of press and controversy because the number one thing was have one less child. Um, <laughs> so obviously, you know, they're attributing your future children's carbon impact to your own, which is potentially challenging because if that's true, then my carbon footprint's not my own, it's my mom's. Um, <laughs> but, you know, regardless, I think, but I, but I mean, I think that obviously holds true, you know, populate, like, you know. Yeah, population. population. But yeah, then looking at things like flying and eating green or whatever, but what they missed was investing. And so my team here did, uh, kind of took it upon ourselves to do a little research project and put out a paper. It's called, I think if you want to Google it, um, it's on our blog. It I'll put Pardon. a link to it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. I think it's called The Dirty Secret in Your yeah. Portfolio or something like that. It's on our it's on our um, blog. But uh, yeah, it basically showed that if you look at a standard in Canadian investment portfolio and, you know, we, we use simple assumptions, like a standard portfolio would be, you know, a combination of TSX, S&P, kind of public equities portfolio, and then some fixed income. Most Canadians investment portfolio, the average Canadian investment portfolio has the biggest impact on their carbon footprint, you know, twice as much as uh, not eating meat for a year. And again, I'm blanking on kind yeah, of the yeah. metrics that we looked at, but really fascinating just to think about all the changes that people make in terms of conscious consumerism and biking to work, et cetera, et cetera. But not a lot of people think about like the impact of your investments and you own your investments by buying a stock, you are funding a company and you should know what that company is doing and and it's hard it's challenging you know it's hard to it takes time to think about and look at and calculate the carbon portfolio of your uh or the carbon impact of your portfolio but there's a lot of tools now and you know people that can kind of help you do it and help you look at your portfolio and say how do I clean it up? And so that answer is going to be, you know, maybe looking at a couple of fossil fuel free ETFs or, you know, a couple of socially responsible investing funds and thinking about with a slice of your portfolio, how do I not just weed out the bad, but do more good. And that's where co-power green bonds kind of come into play. So when you buy a, again, I'm forgetting the numbers right now, but you know, you can offset a good chunk of that carbon footprint by putting $10,000 in a co-power green bond. And we're going to report to you on a, a quarterly basis, your actual CO2 avoidance, uh, which, you know, which a lot of our investors really appreciate seeing, you know, great. This makes me feel less bad about the fact that I flew to Vancouver this year. Uh, Cause I actually offset that by investing in clean energy and we're using really standardized and kind of detailed metrics for how we report on that. So you can also find that, find our process for that on the blog. Um, but it's 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 real. You're you're actually proactively investing in projects that are offsetting carbon. That's awesome. Well, so listeners of the podcast know that I think the hamburger is the greatest food, single food ever made. And <laughs> I try to eat less meat. I, I, I cut back dramatically, but I, I really hard uh, to give that up. And so, in reducing my carbon footprint in other ways is is helpful. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of this really amazing Sir Ronald Cohen quote that I feel like when you read it, you can't unread it or un hear that and it and it's along the lines of like in 30 years from now it will be seen as just completely unacceptable that you would make investments without any regard for their impact on the world around you 
like it really is like crazy for somebody like me who didn't spend his whole career not thinking about it at all. Like, like it, it would be as if you were just sort of walking around, smashing into people, bumping into things, littering everywhere you went without any regard for anyone else in the world. And like, that's what we were doing with investments or like totally. for all time up until now. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Absolutely. And still a lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. <now. laughs> right. Like that anybody would read that quote and then go, Oh no, no, that's, that's silly. Like, what do you mean? You really, you're not going to have any regard for what impact you're having on the world around you. You're not going to pay attention and try to measure it. Like, well, you know, it's funny because I think oh. there was, it's, it's interesting to see the shift start to happen because even 10 years ago, when it came to, you know, the concept of fiduciary duty and what fiduciary duty meant, there was a big debate about whether it was actually um, contrary to your fiduciary duty if you're an investment manager to think about anything but profit. Profit. Yeah. So if you thought about the social impact of your investment, you, you know, under that view, you know, you're and it didn't do well, like your client should be able to sue you because you weren't acting as a fiduciary. Now, I think, you know, in maybe not, I think 10 years ago, maybe that debate was being had a little bit. 20 years ago, that was sort of the view. Like you only think about finance. And then it was like, well, there's this debate. And then the concept of fiduciary duty was expanded so that it may include, um, you know, factors such as environmental, social, and governance. And now we're entering a time where, you know, more and more asset managers have to look at environmental, social governance, not just because of the environmental or social issues, but because of the risks associated with not considering those factors. It's flipped. Uh, And I think it'll be really neat. Like, I think the next evolution is the concept of fiduciary duty kind of mandating that you have to look at those factors. And when we were talking about, you know, how do we get financial advisors, if we had tax incentives, then financial advisors would have to talk to their clients about it. You know, can we mandate know your client forms to say, do you have social or environmental goals that you want to be a part of your investment objectives? Like, I, I feel like as those concepts start to change is the, in the way we look at and think about money and risks and, and negative societal impacts, I, we'll get there. We'll get to, you know, we'll get to exactly where uh, Sir Ronnie says, says we're going, yeah. but it could definitely happen faster. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, I, I'm going to not keep you any longer. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Uh, I, I do love what you guys are doing. I love that you're sharing the word and getting the message out and describing things in clear ways. You hold a whole bunch of like free webinars to introduce people to co-power. They're easy to sign up for and listen to. Um, and so I think you're doing the, the, the industry as a service in that, that regard. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming Well, out. thank you. And I could say likewise, thanks for hosting this podcast and uh, yeah. helping, helping get the word out to more folks about, um, yeah, what different people in this space are doing. Because uh, there's definitely some really good stories to be shared. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Trish. Okay, thanks, David. Okay. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.